Welcome to Podagogies, a learning and teaching podcast at Ryerson University. I'm Curtis Maloli. And I'm Chelsea Jones. This episode is being recorded in Toronto on the Dish with One Spoon territory. We're coming to you from the Allen Slate Radio Studio. Today we have a guest whose agenda is, in many ways, to blow up science education. Dr. David Cram is the Dean of Science at Ryerson. In October, he joined us from the University of Calgary, where he was the director of the nanoscience program, and where he was actively involved in the scholarship of teaching and learning, including research on learning science by doing science, in order to help undergraduates think and act like scientists. David is a self-described science-aholic who urges his students and their teachers to tap into their inner science geek. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. David, what is it that you love so much about science? Um, the sheer discovery of, of knowledge about the universe. Um, I think I've always been curious. I've always loved to um, lay out under the stars and wonder what's going on out there. Um, and there, there's an interesting story. There was a, an event that I was at, Technovation, over the weekend. I don't know if mm. you know that one. Um, basically, technology and business development for um, young women and trying, trying to break the stereotype of these things you can't go into. Told, told them a story when I was in grade six that really speaks to um, engagement in science. I had a great, a great teacher. It was his first year teaching in grade six. Um, so this is west coast of BC. Hmm. Um, and he tasked the, the class with um, making a hypothesis and testing it. And his, his observation was you take an egg up to Westwood Lake and it sinks. You take it down to Departure Bay in the ocean and it floats. Hmm. So why is that? Right. And can you make a hypothesis as to why that is and test it and then basically said I'll give the class every you know every bit of uh, infrastructure and equipment that they need to test that and it was it was a fabulous experience and totally got me thinking about the scientific method um, and 40 years later I'm still thinking about that egg experiment that sounds like learning science by doing science yeah really yeah. really struck me uh, yeah. Yeah. So you've done you've done when you were in Calgary, you were working with their uh, teaching center, uh, doing some scholarly research in that area. What were you What were you looking at in terms of learning science by doing science? Yeah. So we uh, I was part of the development of the nanoscience program, um, whose philosophy was was in this to get students more, if you want to call it, active learning, but even doing things that are you would consider research. Um, so the answers aren't known to the scientific questions, um, and failure is almost inevitable, as it is in most of science, but you always mm. learn by failure. And because of the Taylor Institute for Teaching and Learning's um, expertise in scholarship of teaching and learning, we started to actually study the nanoscience program to see whether it was being effective um, in this approach to learning by doing. And what were the results? Um, so, yeah, it's not rocket science. <laughs> um, that the, the students' um, perception of their learning is stronger when they're doing it, doing something by hand, especially so in, in the experimentation um, side of things. Uh, they retain the knowledge that they have longer and apply it more um, into subjects outside of nanoscience. Um, mm. And so it's, it's like the... You know, we'll, we'll probably do a lot of music um, analogies here. Um, you can learn hypothetically how to play the piano. Um, there's a huge difference in actually sitting down at a piano and getting it into your fingers. And that's so we're trying to get students to get the science into their fingers. And then in terms of teaching it, um, I was working with a, gra a graduate student last year uh, in a biology lab. 
Um, they were doing the mating of shrimp uh, on that day. So did a pre-lab talk, you know, said these are sentient creatures. You have to be careful with them. They're really small. Um, they were pipetting, I guess, a, a male and a female into a little test tube. And so I watched, like, the pre-lab talk, which was great. It was, you know, engaging. But I looked around the room, and a lot of the students weren't – didn't seem to be listening or at least didn't seem to be paying close attention. And then when they went and did the pipetting, I mean, it was it, it seemed to me as an observer to be almost violent, um, like they hadn't really listened to the instructions that clearly mm. in this particular lab. Um, and I asked the TA the next day, um, how to it go? And she said, actually, they most of them died uh, because it, it hadn't been done, I guess, the way it ought to have been done. But in science education, there's this idea that, like, you watch something happen and then you do it. Um, but I imagine in your view of science education, that's a pretty limiting idea. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's not, not just in science education, but almost in any education to get the learner to own the process of learning. Um, mm. They need to be brought in right away um, and even direct the content in some ways. So, you know, if there was a way under, under those conditions that um, the students were active participants in the design of the experiment they would they would kind of own it out of the gate more rather than um, you know in a sense a factory style of observation repetition um, and everything works and the um, the conclusion is almost known before you even do the experiment so like with the lab talk instead of doing it as the TA in that case you're getting the students to think through what would be the process of having these shrimp made and then they would kind of come you would guide them but they would come up with the process yeah for example like um, you know, it might be in some ways naive to think that you'd show them all the potential um, equipment in the lab. Here's everything that you could use. How would you design an experiment um, mm -hmm. that would allow you to take the observations that you're hoping to take? And this would probably consume more time than whoever designed this experiment wanted it to. So it might have to run over a couple of days under those circumstances. So you need to create um, the physical space, but also the temporal space for this kind of design and, and learning by doing it. It just takes longer. Gotcha. So I know that you really love science and you have a passion for science, but some people are quite intimidated by science and, and there's some fear there. And these processes you're describing of learning by failure and owning the content that also seems like it could potentially be scary when it comes to entering into science, especially if it's not something that you have sort of a natural passion for. So how do you unbind some of that fear in learners? Um, yeah, there's the, the, you're exactly right. Um, by the time students hit university, um, they've had so many experiences that give them fear of failure. Um, I think in school in general, but in mm. science especially, because there's this perception of the correct answer. Um, that certainly pops up on any exam that any student's ever taken in, in a science. You got it wrong, you got it right. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, if you go back to when, when we were super young and, and not afraid of science or technology or math, we were just curious about stuff. So I think that the, the fear actually is developed. I don't think it exists right, right from the get-go. Like, kids are interested in mud puddles. They're interested in snowflakes. Um, they're interested in the stars. And there's no, nothing to intimidate them to stop, you know, stop asking questions or be right or wrong about their perception. But the, the educational system that we have kind of starts to drill that in. And, you know, in science, there are hypotheses that are, have been proven to be incorrect, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, but we maybe we side a little bit too much on that proving things incorrect so we become hypercritical in science in every aspect of it including the way we test and if somebody has a kind of 
personal tendency um, to be fearful of failure, um, then science is, is going to reinforce that fear, unfortunately. So whatever we can do to provide them safe spaces where it's more about the process of their thinking than getting the right answer. Um, and you know, hopefully over, over years, from first year to fourth year, you can start to decouple the science with the fear. Now, I know that you're also a musician, and you've spoken about coupling science also with, with creativity and personal creative process. Can you say a little bit about what science and creativity have to do with one another? Yeah, it's interesting. I was just um, today uh, in in the same building that the, the recording studio is um, uh, in a panel looking at research in the Faculty of Communications and Design. And that's I was sitting amongst, amongst a bunch of creatives. Yeah. Um, and I kind of started to mention these ideas. Um, and they, you know, they looked at me like, oh, you're one of us. When, when a scientist or somebody interested in the natural world um, makes an observation and they start to generate ideas about what, what that observation was, how it came to be, um, that's a creative process. Um, so generation of a hypothesis in science is a creative process. And we've never really explored that process from how do you generate good hypotheses. Um, students will often, and, and scientists as well, think that their first hypothesis is the greatest one and right. not allow space to explore different hypotheses. You, I know you're, um, you're really into music. Probably a lot of our listeners don't know that you, you compose your own music. You've got your own SoundCloud channel. Uh, what's the name of the SoundCloud channel? Denial Factory. Denial Factory. There you go. So look up Denial Factory. Um, but to, to what extent, how, or how does um, your interest in music then, to build off of what Chelsea's asking, how does that inform the way you think about science? Yeah, certainly, um, you know, picking up the guitar eight or so years ago, and prior to that, I'm, um, I'm the guy that used to hang out with musicians. So mm. a drummer, mm. right? That's the, the joke amongst <laughs> drummers. Yeah. yeah. Or the, the quip that... Uh, that John Lennon had when somebody asked him if Ringo Starr was the the greatest drummer in the world, and he said like he's not even the greatest drummer in the Beatles. <laughs> so we're always getting dissed as musicians, <laughs> no um, drummers. So yeah, when I picked up a guitar and just started playing, and I've been listening to music. It's been in, in my life um, right from the get go. My father was a huge fan of jazz, big band kind of stuff, um, and so I was really motivated to learn to play the songs that I loved, and in the in the process of that, learn how to play my own songs. And I found that returning to a theme again and again, which you could call practice um, in some ways, and I think in, in the biz um, they do call it practice, um, serendipity takes place. And that's that's in some ways the creative process. So, you know, like you could sit down and want to be creative, and some days the muse is with you and and often the muse is not with you. But if you keep returning to a theme, even a mistake can be a moment of inspiration. And so, mm -hmm. like, I'll be trying to work on a theme, and I'll mess it up. And it'll be, oh, that was terrible. And then one day, oh, that was really cool. I should try and find that again. And I think the, the way that transposes into science is the same thing. So you can keep returning to your thoughts, your understandings, your exper experimentation of, of how, how something works and testing that. And you can um, be open to a shift in that understanding and, and allowing that creativity to come in. And that's, that kind of returns to the theme of the safety of the space. You know, if students are doing that in their understanding, they're, 
they're allowed to have an experiment so-called fail um, and it's only a failure when they don't learn something from what might have taken place. And it could be that it wasn't a failure. They got a different result because there was some slight twist in how they set up the experiment. And now they've discovered something really cool and different uh, if their minds are prepared to be available to that discovery. And how do students respond to the process that you've just described? Yeah, they hate it. Mm. <laughs> what, what does that mean? In what ways do they hate it? It's... Um, I think culturally, in at least in Western science, um, and um, you know, I love my K to twelve sisters and brothers and teaching, but the the whole culture um, leads them towards success for thing things work as planned, hmm. and so when things don't work as planned, um, a person develops a I guess a personal sense of failure in that and hmm. becomes intimidated with anything other than explaining why they messed up so that what they were trying to do didn't work. That may actually be true, um, but if there's less stakes on getting the answer correct and more on the observation process, you know, they may see it as a moment of, you know, maybe not inspiration, but learning. And I'm just thinking even in terms of the way you assess that. I think yeah. usually when you, when you, quote, fail, it means you've gotten a bad grade too. Yeah. But I guess then you would focus your assessment and your rubric or whatever you were using on that process as opposed to the outcome of the process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I, you know, I'd like to see, I'd like to see more competency-based assessment in science as well, um, competency and mastery, rather than a correct answer. Um, you know, there's there's some some validity in the in the correctness of an answer, and you know, a mathematical proof, um, for example, a word problem where you're trying to get a number out of something, but. You know, much more important is, you know, 99% of that is the student's process because mm. they can always enter a number wrong into a calculator, make one drop in a minus sign, you know, and is that crucial? Um, I also think, you know, I'm, I'm starting to starting to get really tweaked about the whole GPA thing now, too. Like, it's, it's that, that um, slavery to the grades that we, you know, we keep promoting um, really gets students twisted about the learning process. You know, it, it seems like there's, the GPA has maybe removed some of the joy um, from just sheer learning. Mm, but um, how do you overcome that? I and mean, if, if you're thinking of science education, I'm a professor in your faculty and I come to you and say, I want to get away from these grades, but I don't know how. Yeah, yeah, then, you know, like the whole idea of actually being um, mindful about, about assessment and what are you truly trying to assess for. And there's going to probably be more resources involved. So if you're trying to assess an individual's process, um, you can't necessarily glean that from what they've written on a page. Um, and this is where like the scholarship of teaching and learning comes in, because maybe you can. Maybe there are ways that you can pull into science from other learning uh, scholars uh, that you can assess the process better. And I think often it comes down to resources. Like we, we do multiple choice questions in large biology sections because we've got 600 students to assess and we believe that we have to assess you know their their fundamental knowledge their power of recollection and the most efficient way to do that is a multiple choice exam um, but that doesn't get at their process at all so you're you're sort of talking about changes to some of the traditional ways that science is taught in the classroom by by instructors or by professors but it sounds like you're also talking about institutional changes. Yeah, I think it, it, it has to be um, institutional. 
um, this this is an example that you know we found in in the NANS program back at the University of Calgary that all all these great things that we were doing um, we also surveyed the students like that had only done a couple of NANS courses and how they um, how their way of thinking remained the same or changed um, by the time they graduated and if they hadn't stuck with the NANS program they basically lost a lot of the attitude um, because they went back into traditional programs with traditional assessments. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so if if this is going to be successful and actually shift a culture, then the entire culture's got to shift. Um, that, that's a huge ask. And um, and I'm not saying that you know the the traditional lecture does have have some merit for some element of education. Um, and so for some folks, that's that's a beautiful destiny. Like they're incredibly. Um, entertaining, mindful, inspirational in the classroom, and mm-hmm. can motivate a student to go and learn more. You know, that that's a that's a great thing. Um, for some students, that that's not enough. Um, and you know, providing, I guess, um, e-learning, distance learning um, opportunities for students to go and do stuff on on their own as well. And yeah, we have to, I guess, decide whether the outcome of the learning process that we want. Is better served by sticking with what we're doing or trying something new and trying new things is scary for sure i was listening to um last year i saw dr greg evans at, at, at university of toronto speak he's a engineering professor really focused on teaching and uh he creates these very even in giant lectures he creates these group assignments students have different roles uh kind of like what you were talking about earlier problem-based learning and they have to solve the problem um, but he he explicitly said in his lecture to us that uh, you know there is there is in STEM education a tyranny of content were his words. Um, I wonder is that the same in the science education that you've experienced, and how do you overcome tyranny of content in STEM? Um, yeah, it, it absolutely is the same anywhere where there's in, you know encyclopedias of prior knowledge and this um, the slavery to believing that you need all that prior knowledge to step forward. Um, versus mastery of the subject, which isn't just recall of the knowledge. So it, it's mm. it's everywhere. Um, but science, you know, like STEM, yeah, science, technology, engineering, um, maybe a little bit less so in math. Math mm. is a little bit more like arts. Um, really? Yeah, it's because it really is all about process. Mm. Um, and you can you can follow someone's process on a page in math a little bit more so than you could in in biology, for example. Um, so yeah, it's, it's similar and how you get away, away from that. Um, I guess you have to start, um, for a scientist providing, um, a scientific method to show them that it ain't working. Right. Um, you know, so like have, you know, do your, your clickers or whatever, you know, you're in class recall or give the lecture of your lifetime for a student and then have them come in the next day to the classroom and give them a quick quiz to see what they retained from that lecture. I mean, you might even ask them to like, just go away and don't think about it. Don't study. Just like come back on Friday. Um, I'm going to quiz you on this stuff and see what the retention was. And I mean, in, the, in where these studies have been done, it's like less than 20%. Right. You know, yeah. so this is not the mechanism of knowledge acquisition by students. It, it's something, but it's not knowledge acquisition. So under those circumstances, why are we pumping more content into a lecture? because somebody in a course down the line thinks that they need that as, as prerequisite knowledge for their course. Mm-hmm. And yet we'll complain about the fact they don't know anything from the prereq course mm. coming in. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like that as a, 
an undergrad at UBC and like my, um, I think it was coming back into second year and I couldn't believe that the profs expected me to know anything from first year. Wow. Like, right. Because it wasn't there. I hadn't used it for four months. Um, right. so like, how can you expect me to retain that? It seemed incredible. And yet like there they were, dude, you're responsible for this knowledge. And like, yeah, I get that too, but how can I maintain that knowledge when I'm not using it? Which I guess comes back to the doing. I wasn't doing any science over the summer. Mm-hmm. So how do you get students to be doing science in classrooms? Um, yeah, so the, the buy-in, the bringing in of, of real science to the classroom, like um, authentic um, scientific experience. And, and this is where it can be a, a true win-win for folks um, because they can bring in their research passions to the classroom, which is exactly, you know, it's like the... Um, the stellar birthing room of knowledge. You know, it's where knowledge is happening. It's in, in every scientist's research program. And, you know, so they can, they can at least approach knowledge from that point of view. Like, okay, so this is what's going on. I'm, you know, a biology teacher, but I also do biology in, in my lab. Here's a little question that we had. Here's what was known before. And we started to think about what the next step would be. That's the scientific generation. So acknowledging that it's built on prior knowledge for sure. Hmm. Um, but not, not all the prior knowledge has to be integrated before you take the next step in learning. And we've kind of done that institutionally as well. Like first and second year tends to be a truckload of filling the toolkit of like processes, ideas. And then, then students actually get to explore their major in third and fourth year. And that's a couple of years of, of real heavy grind. Um, you know, and, and I, I appreciate the grind because that comes back to the music analogy. Like you, you still have to, you know, play. You still have to do some stuff and do it in a way that becomes familiar. But it can't be all grind. Like right. you can't just right. do scales and then all of a sudden be expected to write stuff after that. Right. So, I mean, one thing that I'm really sensing here is that there's sort of a push to get students actually out of the classroom in particular ways. And yeah. and the reason that this is coming to mind is because I, I don't have a science background, and I, ha- I think I have probably a very limited view of what people do in science classrooms. So even when we talk about um, learning science by doing science, in my mind, I still have this sort of stock photo image of students in white lab coats leaning over petri dishes and then writing over up their findings. But of course, that's not that's not what you mean. So I'm just wondering, you know, can you reframe it for me? Can you tell me what that looks like? Right. So, um, or even in nanoscience, like what were you doing with your students in the mm-hmm. nanoscience? Right. Research yeah, group? as yeah. a concrete example. Yeah. Um, so, like the. In that program, everything that we did leading up to the the capstone course, which was them designing and um, and doing a research project on something with respect to nano, and so we were basically building up the outcome. Every outcome that we cared about was designed to get them to a point where they weren't scared out of their minds in that capstone course. Mm. And so we'd start them off in groups. Um, they'd get a little bit of knowledge, um, like something about quantum confinement. Um, so like a... Just something small. Yeah, some, <laughs> some, some tiny little idea um, about like why an electron behaves in a funky way when it's actually confined to something. And if you go online, like IBM has these quantum corrals and they're basically on a, two, a 2D surface. Um, you can line up atoms and it actually looks like a hockey rink. Oh. And oh. then if you see what the electron does, and it's on the nanoscale, so like 10 to 
10 to 100 nanometers um, in, in length. So you're imagining like a hockey rink of that size. And the electrons that are inside that arena um, behave in a specific way so that they actually be behave more like waves um, than particles in there. And so you get wave patterns inside the arena that depends on the shape of the arena. And this is all, um, you can teach this to second year students quite quite easily, get them to at least get the rudiments of the understanding. And then what we do is get them into groups and ask them to design a better solar antenna based on this kind of technology. Hmm. Um, and, and that was it, right? So like a really, really loosey-goosey question where um, it's really, you know, they're using a little bit of idea of integration, um, but they're also exploring like, so what, what would an antenna have to do? Like, what is the, what is the issue um, with current antennas, like what why, what do we care about? Is it capturing the whole color spectrum of of the sun? And like that yeah, that's part of it. What are the the kind of basic optical ideas that they have to explore? And so they start exploring things that they haven't had the background in, um, and that starts them down the path of kind of learning by doing or learning on the fly. Mm. And that sense. speaks to that creativity. I mean, the idea that the verb you're using there for their assessment is to design, right? So you're yep. really at the top level of what you're asking students to do, and then even in second year. I'm wondering at the same time, uh, I've been reading recently about uh, a push in undergraduate education to get undergraduates involved in uh, research experiences. Right. So like side by side with their professors doing research. Uh, is that a priority at Ryerson? Is that something you're discussing with your faculty? Yeah, I mean, my my goal would be to have um, every science student at Ryerson get a res an authentic research experience, like every semester, wow. if, if possible, but at least once in their degree to like to start a little bit more, more more modestly, and that would be some sort of integration into somebody's research group, um, hmm. or it could be student self directed research if if there were resources to do that, um, you know the. Um, the challenge is always: is there enough space to accommodate the, you know, twenty five hundred or so students into into a research lab? Um, but Toronto is an amazing place to do research. Like there's there's so many things going on with our water supply here that students could participate in. So there's like outside of the university, uh, many many opportunities to help gather data and assess data. So yeah, that that kind of thing, and where they're taking ownership because they have a, a role to play in the design of the experiments that they're. Um, exploring, or if it's not uh, like a liter literal experiment, um, designing code, trying to figure out AI, um, working on algorithms with folks in math, that sort of stuff. Which yeah. naturally you're going to be passionate about if you're a student, right? I mean, if it's something like AI, that's like the big question right now. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's a huge differentiator for um, for employment as well. When you've had that literal experience in this rather than hypothetical, and I've been talking with folks out there in the financial district um, in the biz and that what they really really are looking for now in a sense is translators of the scientific knowledge to the the end users whether whether that's business folk um, finance folk customers that sort of thing um, is where a real a real niche um, can be explored and it could be that you know science and the scientific method is exactly the way to approach um, this communication of what the what the really hardcore code um, superpowers are doing, making AI mm. um, and taking it to folks that are, you know, largely probably afraid of AI right now. Like if they're listening to Elon Musk at all, they're hmm. probably quite afraid. I'm a little afraid. Yeah, I've seen, what is that movie <laughs> I mean, called? Uh, the movie, there was, a, what's the movie about AI where uh, they all die? 
<laughs> it's probably all of them. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Help me in the studio in there. What is that called? Oh, you mean Terminator 2? Uh, no, that that's a good one. That's an older one, but I was thinking... Oh, Ex Machina. That's the one, uh, Ex Machina. Have you seen yeah. that one? Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. my idea of... of um, that's my idea. <laughs> that's what you think AI is? Yeah. Yeah, we need to take some science classes and get so. some new ideas, I think. Yeah, well, David's inspiring me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, one question that I have is, given in the things that you're discussing, like you're, you're dreaming big, but given the just the way things are and the way that the university and even the semester is set up, you know, you have... 12 or 13 weeks where you have to sort of get the curriculum in somehow. Do you have any advice for people teaching science? Any small thing that they can do to sort of liven up their classrooms or, or make a dent in the way things that are, are going? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the way to start this is probably in third or fourth year. Like it, getting it to trickle down to large enrollment classes is a, is a whole other um, discussion and and we're having these discussions right now but like starting that that out of the gate is pretty dangerous um, and this is the way that I started as well so I did a pilot um, example of the NANS program in a fourth year course where I brought in these ideas of kind of learning by doing that it's almost like a tutorial we do a little bit of lecturing and then we we apply it right away in groups and and provide lots of space um, what I what I've done is I've just asked everybody like if if you for a minute allow yourself to imagine delivering only 80 percent of the content that mm. you did like mm. be a little bit ruthless about what's really important content wise in this course and then in that 20 percent allow the space for this kind of exploration of the students um bring and you know get get your chair or your dean to get you some resources to do that so if you need some extra ta support or whatever and even just in the classroom allow the students to explore these ideas and and start to get some ownership on on those ideas and walk around and and be their mentor um, that's the one thing like people that um, find education um, a bit of a grind it's largely um, because of the marking and the day-to-day -day grind of just lecturing and like you even get tired of your own voice god i'm getting tired of my own voice right now <laughs> <laughs> it happens about 20 minutes in um, every time um, but what everybody always loves is like the one-on-one -on -one or the one-on-two interactions with learners. Mm -hmm. um, and when you can, you know, you get that aha moment in their eyes that you can see and that that's so fulfilling as an educator. And so provide space in your own lecture for that to happen. Um, but that means tossing some content. Um, one could argue though in a fourth year course, you're not really prereq to anything anymore. So mm -hmm. there's maybe less, the stakes are a little bit lower in tossing out some content there. I have to say one thing I'm, I'm I wish this was not a radio this wasn't like a podcast it was a TV thing because I wish people could see your eyes uh, <laughs> yeah, the passion you can just see the passion uh, that you have for science thank you so much for, for being with us today and sharing all of this oh you're very welcome uh, we want to also thank everyone at RTA Productions Jillian Pownall Alex Verney and John Gerardo this podcast is funded by the Learning and Teaching Office at Ryerson University. And if you have any feedback on today's episode, maybe you're inspired to tap into your inner science geek, give us a shout at podagogies at ryerson.ca.